was uh, that was great. I don't know that we use this word very much, but that was anointed. We have uh, we've been in this series on knowing God's will, so we can follow God's will, and you know, a lot of times when we ask these kinds of questions, what's God's will? What's God's will for my day? What's God's will for my life? A lot of times. It's a question of curiosity. It's almost theoretical. Like, I'd really want to know where this is going. But the bottom line in all of this is we ought to know, want to know God's will because God is worthy of our complete and utter obedience and yieldedness. I want to know God's will. And you ought to know God's will. Because he's worthy of every second, of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week. That's why we're in this series, because he's worthy. Now, we've spent some time talking about some foundational principles for knowing God's will. And uh, last week, we got to talking about the conscience a little bit. And this week, we're going to start talking about the conscience again. Uh, the damaged conscience. Because last week I, I had mentioned that at least part of discerning God's will, knowing God's will, is simply following your conscience, which is a reflection of God on the human soul where God enables you and me to know right from wrong, good from evil, so that moment by moment we know we're tracking with God. That's the conscience. Now last week I said you need to let conscience be your guide, you need to follow your conscience. But today I need to kind of add a little bit to that, and, and that is... Let conscience be your guide if your conscience is healthy or to the degree that it's healthy because it's entirely possible that your conscience is not healthy. You see, the Bible doesn't talk about your conscience in terms of it being like the Bible or like the Holy Spirit. The the Bible does not attribute infallibility to the conscience or inerrancy to the conscience. Uh, No, but the Holy Spirit does speak to you through the conscience. The Holy Spirit as Jesus taught, convicts us of sin and it also comforts us. The Holy Spirit, he does both of these things in our lives. And he does this largely through the conscience. But the conviction and the comfort that come from the Holy Spirit are not going to come through very clearly if your conscience is unhealthy. So it would be good for you and good for me to make sure that our conscience is healthy so that it does register the day in and day out, moment by moment, leadership of the Holy Spirit in in our lives. And because the Holy Spirit and the Bible are infallible and errant in a way that our conscience is not, the Apostle Paul says, hey, even my own conscience has limitations. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, he says, I care, care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul says, I need to keep a clear conscience, but even if my conscience isn't bothering me, that doesn't mean that I'm in the right because my conscience isn't the Bible. My conscience isn't the Holy Spirit. My conscience could be off. I don't get to judge me in the final analysis. That would be God. So it's really interesting that a healthy conscience and the work of the Holy Spirit on our lives, the work of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures which were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the operations of the conscience, they, they actually are very much in step. 
Last week we talked about how in Romans chapter 2, verses 14, 15 and 16, that the conscience, sometimes it accuses and sometimes it defends. Sometimes it's the, it's the prosecutor and sometimes it's the defender. And the Holy Spirit does both of those activities too. And so if we're going to be discerning and moment by moment in step with the Spirit, following God moment by moment, we've got to protect the conscience and keep the conscience clean so that we can know God's will, not for the entirety of our lives, just moment by moment as we walk with Him. As I mentioned last week, a lot of times when we say, what's God's will for my life? A lot of times people think in grand schemes or timelines and all the rest. And I like to help people to understand, no, you know, if you're not willing to follow him moment by moment in the now, well, who cares if you know about the whole map of your life? If you're concerned about following God this morning, this afternoon, this evening, God will make sure that you are in step with him for the duration of your life. But if you can't be trusted with little things like today, why do you think God's going to trust you by laying out the duration of the entirety of your life. So follow your conscience, but your conscience needs to be healthy, but oftentimes they're not healthy. And this is not just a Christian thing. This is a, it's just a thing. Everybody knows that people can have damaged consciences. In fact, we have these terms for people with poor consciences or no consciences. They're, they're called uh, sociopaths and psychopaths. Uh, a psychopath is understood as somebody who has basically no conscience. They don't have a sense of morality. When they do something that is wrong, there are not a- alarm bells that go off. It's like there's no battery or the wiring is faulty. They just, it just doesn't register. Then we have sociopaths, and they do have a conscience, but it's a very weak alarm. And a lot of times for the sociopath, they just listen to the alarm so that they can better manipulate somebody else who has a stronger conscience. But they don't follow their conscience because it's so weak that they can disregard it or just hit the snooze button or enable them to be informed better on how to manipulate other people around them. So they're psychopaths and sociopaths. Now, I don't know that I've ever met a psychopath. How many of you here here have ever met a psychopath? I'm just kind of curious. Okay, well, that's interesting. If I have met one, I don't know because... And, and because if I met one, you know, maybe, you know, they would have eaten my liver with, you know, fava beans and, you know, fine Chianti or something. And so I might not even be here. I don't know. But I don't know if I've ever met a, a psychopath. I have met some sociopaths. But, you know, the, the type that I run into the most that I think is very prominent, and you're not going to find this in any uh, mental health textbook, it's the sociopath. If you Google sociopath, you're probably not going to find anything but I'm a philosopher. I get to make words up. Here is what a sociopath is. And most, most of the people you run into, they're sociopaths. Whenever we are in a situation where we're going, is this right or wrong? We need to listen to our conscience, but there's two other things that are going on in those moments. There's the concern of conscience, but there's also the concern of cowardice. And there's the concern of consensus. The concern of the conscience is, is this right or wrong? The concern of cowardice is, is this safe? Am I going to be okay? What about me? That's the concern of cowardice. And then there's the concern of consensus. What's everybody else say? What's everybody else want me to do? Now, a person who has a strong conscience says, I'm just going to do what's right because it's right. That's it. I don't, all the other things are side interests. 
The person who is a sociopath has their conscience overwhelmed by these other two concerns. Is it safe, the concern of cowardice, and is it popular, the concern of consensus? If consensus and cowardice override your conscience, you're a sociopath. I'll give you an example out of the Bible. and say, well, I don't want to be a sociopath. Well, you're in good company because that includes King David. Remember the story last week where David is in the cave, and this is over in 1 Samuel chapter 24. David is in the cave, and he's on the run from, from King Saul, and Saul's there in a vulnerable position. And David's men, they all go, take the king down, the consensus, kill him. And then the concern of cowardice is it's safe. It's dark. You can sneak up behind him. You could stab him in the back. And like most cave systems, we'll just run out the back door or side door. We'll be good. Nobody will know. It's a great opportunity. It's safe. And this is what we all want to have happen. David in that moment is looking at the concerns of cowardice and the concerns of consensus. And he is compromising with his conscience. He doesn't actually kill the king, but he cuts off a corner of the robe because, and that's, he takes the so-so path. When you're listening to your conscience, here's the right path or here's the wrong path. But David doesn't take the right path. He just kind of compromises between the paths and he takes the so-so path. So-so paths take the so-so path because they're not concerned about simply doing right because it's right. They weigh in too heavily or more heavily the concerns of consensus and the concerns of cowardice. Now, I've met a whole lot of sociopaths. In fact, on occasion, I would say, I've been a sociopath. And I've taken the sociopath. And this is unfortunate because sociopaths do not reflect God's glory. So, we want to heal from our sociopathology. So what we're going to do today is talk about the damaged conscience, the different categories of the damaged conscience, and also the uh, ways that we can deal with the various damaged consciences, okay? And uh, so let's just start real simply by talking about the three different categories of the damaged conscience. Uh, there is the seared conscience, there's the weak conscience, and then there's the guilty conscience. And fortunately... The Bible not only spells out these different problems, but it also gives us solutions to these different problems so that we're in a better place to actually hear and know God's will in our lives. First, there's the, there is the uh, seared conscience. And the, the seared conscience is the conscience that is burned. Like if you, if you sear something, you burn it, it's singed, it's carterized and and maybe some of you, you've been burned before or you've, you've been cut. Maybe it's a surgery or something like that. And there's a scar or there's a mark and you don't feel anything anymore because the nerves are dead or they're gone. How many of y'all have, have places in your body that if we poked or pricked till it bled, you, you just wouldn't even feel it? Really? Can you tell me where this is, Jonathan? I would like to know. Okay. That's great. Okay. That's great. I'll take advantage of that sometime. Uh, but, you know, most of us, we have these places that are not very sensitive or not sensitive at all. That's the seared conscience. It's not, it's not functioning appropriately. And the Bible talks about this in, in different places. This is over in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read the first two verses together. The uh, Spirit clearly says that in later times, 
some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. What? Demon doctrines. Some teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Now, this is really interesting to me because here you have people whose consciences are so seared, they're so corrupted, they're so without feeling that they're actually accepting and propagating terrible false doctrines, doctrines that Paul would say are doctrines of demons. Like, what? Do we have examples of this in the Bible? Actually, we do. The example of the Pharisees. Here are some people who have intellectual capacities, educational opportunities. They've seen Jesus do miracles right in front of their faces. And yet these Pharisees, who were supposed to be the experts in the law, they see Jesus doing these miracles right in front of them. And what do they say? Oh, this guy's doing what he's doing because of the demons. He's he's serving Beelzebub. He, He is Beelzebub. He's the prince of demons. That's what's going on here. What? They, here are some people who were supposed to be part of the Pharisees' job and the teachers of the law was to be able to identify the Messiah when he came. And here's the Messiah right in front of them. That was part of their job. And then they killed this innocent man without remorse. How does that happen? Well, apparently, knowing God, knowing God's will, following God's will, it's not merely a matter of intellectual capacity or educational opportunity. It's also a matter of the conscience. And if your conscience is not clean, if it is seared, if it is damaged, you can be looking the truth literally right in the face and you will miss it. We have examples in history of people who've had seared consciences and they've, they've missed it completely. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing, actually. Now, I, I love the Constitution. And in fact, every time I see people taking the Constitution lightly or dismissing the Constitution, it really bothers me because I think that the people who wrote the Constitution are geniuses. Really, I mean, I'm not kidding. I'm not saying I interpret the Constitution entirely correctly, but those people are geniuses. And people who don't recognize genius shouldn't be interpreting the documents of geniuses. Okay, that's just a, that, that's, that was free. But, in spite of the fact that these geniuses say, oh yeah, we've been created by our creator and been granted certain inalienable human rights, these same geniuses had so abridged their consciences that these inalienable human rights were not extended to other human beings that lived within the boundaries of this great nation. Black people, slaves at the time, about half a million. Like, how could these geniuses miss this? You know how? It's not that they weren't smart. Seared conscience. Uh, some of you have read Huckleberry Finn, and there's this moment where Mark Twain's character, Huckleberry Finn, is asked about this accident that happens down the river. And she said, did anybody get hurt? He says, and he says, well, you know, no, nobody was injured. A, a couple of black people were killed. And he uses the N-word. And then the southern lady says, oh, that's good. A person could get killed in an accident like this. And you go, well, how could a southern gentle lady... How could geniuses who wrote our Constitution exclude human beings from humanity? Or you ask now, how is it that when it comes to children, 
human beings in the womb, that somehow there are many conversations that happen and they're not even included in the conversation with regards to the inalienable rights to life. How does that happen? Conscience gets seared. It gets corrupted. Wow. Well, if we have corrupted consciences, uh, how do we uncorrupt them? How does, how does it get unseared? How does feeling return where feeling has disappeared? That's a good question. The Bible gives us three things that we, I think, need to do when it comes to the seared conscience, the corrupted conscience. And it has to do with these games that we stop playing. There's the blame game, there's the comparison game, and then there's the remake the maker game. And let me kind of explain these one at a time. There's the blame game. And we're really, really good at this. It, we've been playing this game for a long time. The blame game goes like this. Well, if you would have been there, if you, if, if you were married to him or you were married to her, if you'd had my upbringing, if you'd experienced this, well, then you would have done the same thing. Or it's a miracle that I only did what I did because I should have done this. And if you would have been in my shoe, you would have done, done that. And, and he told me to, and I did, and we blame everybody else. And the reason this is so damaging to the conscience is you have, you avoid personal responsibility by never looking inward, always looking backwards or always looking outwards, but never looking inwards. And when you don't own responsibility for your actions, you avoid your conscience and you lose sensitivity. It's a very old game. You know how it starts with Adam and Eve, right? I mean, Adam and Eve are in the garden and Adam has... And Eve, they've eaten the forbidden fruit and got to say, hey, what's going on? And, and, uh, like he didn't know, but you know, sometimes that's how conversations work. He knows, but he wants you to know that he knows and let's work this out together. So Adam, what, what's going on? And Adam says, well, you know, the woman, she gave me some fruit and I ate it. So it's like, what's it? It was her. So just to get this out of the way, so we know how to play the blame game, guys, look at the woman next to you and say, your fault. Okay. Now repent of that. But that's how the game is played. Now, most of the time, we're not that unsophisticated about it. Okay, but that's what we do. Well, you said, and you did, and it gets worse. It's not just that he blames the woman. He blames God. The woman you made, the woman you gave me, gave me the fruit. Like, I wouldn't have done it if it weren't for you, God. Because if this woman hadn't come along, and oh, let's see, how did she come along? Yeah, 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 you put me into surgery. Gave her to me, and I couldn't resist because, you know, we weren't clothed at the time. And, and so it's kind of on you, God. You did it. And then the woman takes the lead of the man. Well, you know, the serpent tricked me, and then I ate it. And so, like, you know, he's tricky. Now, these are true. The woman did give him the fruit. God did give Adam the woman and the serpent did trick Eve. And is that an excuse? No. It's not an excuse. Now you can see that. And we can see this really, really clearly when it's other people. But it's hard for us to see it with ourselves. But oh, silly Adam, why would you blame Eve and God? And oh, Eve, why would you blame this serpent? And Okay, what do we do now? How many of us are still blaming our parents or that guy or that gal or that situation, or my culture, or my upbringing, blah, 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 blah. And I don't want to make light of these things because some of you have gone through things that I don't understand. I mean, honestly, I, I don't mean to be unfeeling here because the truth of the matter is 
Some of you have faced some terrible things. And some of you had disadvantaged upbringings. And I don't know what it's like to have been over there or over here or to have been married to him or her or had that parent. I don't know. And sincerely, I'm sorry. And I mean that. But until you own things, until you own it enough to where you can forgive it or repent of having bought the lies that were sold to you, I don't care what age, until you take responsibility for your actions, your conscience will continue to be seared. And this is why people do things. You know, you heard it, broken people break other people. The reason people do things to other people that was done to them and they said, I'd never do that, and then they end up doing that, is because... The seared conscience. You've lost sensitivity and you were doing things you swore you'd never do. And you're doing them because your conscience is corrupted. And the good thing about owning things is you can do something about it. The bad thing about staying stuck in blame is you're stuck. I, I tell people, don't, 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 God can heal anything and He can get people past anything, but if somebody is stuck playing the blame game, don't, don't marry that guy. Don't, don't marry that girl. You'll be stuck with them. So you gotta stop playing the blame game. There's another game that we're really, really good at here in America, and that's the comparison game. And social media has made this so much more fun to play. You know, it's, it's a great game, you know, the comparison game. But then it's also, you know, it's not just, you know, comparing things to things. It's just like, well, okay, I know I did this and I should have done that. But look at this guy over here. Did you see that post? The comparison game. If You, you know, I know I, I shouldn't have, but I'm nothing like my brother. And then all of a sudden you start comparing people to other people and yourself to other people. And there's this passage, I wish I'd looked it up. I think it's 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. I don't know who did the first and second, but they, they ought to repent. Anyways, it's one of those Corinthians, and it's just basically people who compare themselves with themselves are fools. You're not wise. If you're always comparing yourself to other people, you're always going to come out ahead because you can pick and choose the people to whom you compare yourself, and you can pick and choose the things about the different people to which you compare yourself, so you always come out ahead. You know the problem with that? The problem with that is you're not dealing with your conscience. You're not owning anything. You're just, you're deflecting. And you deflect and you deflect and you deflect. And, and eventually you stop feeling because the alarm's going off and the alarm's going off, but you're not hearing it anymore. And you're, you've had this neuroplasticity and your brain is doing other things. And all of a sudden you have tuned things out just like some of us have tuned out the ringing in our ears. You don't even think about it till somebody brings it up. And I'm sorry if I just make you think about the ring. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Anyways, but that's what happens in the comparison game. Stop comparing. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, if you're going to compare any, yourself to anybody, compare yourself to God. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. He's the standard. You fall short. Deal. Then there's the, the third thing. It's not the blame game or the comparison game. There's the remake the maker game. And here's how that game works. We like to shrink God down to size, put him in a box, and stick him over in a corner so we don't have to deal with him. And, and the game works like this. Oh, you know, God's my bud. He's the man upstairs. He's like my bro in the big brother, big sister program. And God is love, and he wants me to be happy. And, and if he loved me, he'd want me to be happy. And doing this makes me happy. And so God fits perfectly into my image. 
We're not creating him his image. We've recreated him in ours. And then we just kind of do whatever we want to do. And that's another way that you can deaden your conscience and do whatever it is that you want to do without paying attention to how your conscience is getting corrupted and corrupted and corrupted. And I hear this all the time. I hear it on radio. I hear it, you know, podcasts. It's all this junk where we've reinterpreted God in such a way that repentance isn't even necessary anymore. I've got a new, I've got a, I've got a wonderful verse for people who want to shrink God down to size. This is wonderful. This is over in, uh, Isaiah chapter 40 verses 25 and 28. To whom will you compare me, says God, or who is my equal? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Gotta stop playing the games if you want your conscience to heal up. That's the seared conscience. There's another problem with regards to the conscience and that's the weak conscience. And the weak conscience has to do with your background, cultural upbringing. You don't exactly understand or not very sharp with regards to right and wrong, good and bad, because you've had your conscience reshaped or manipulated by the culture of which you are part or the group of which you are part. And so you can't trust your conscience because it's weak. Let me give you an example of this. This is over in the Bible. This is over in Romans chapters 14 and 15. And Paul addresses this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verses, I think, 1 through 8, 1 through 12. Here, here's the, the situation. In the early church, especially outside of Israel, when people would come to Christ, let's say in Corinth or Rome or whatever, they, were, they came out of paganism. They would come into the church. And all of a sudden they'd be convicted about some of their pagan practices in the past. And in their past, they would have sacrificed meat to idols in many cases. So they'd take the meat, sacrifice the idol, and it's like, well, is the idol going to eat it? It's like, you know, made out of wood. They don't actually eat. And so this would be sacrificed. Well, the people in the temple would take that meat, and of course they're going to use the proceeds. So some of this meat that would be sacrificed to idols would then be in the marketplace, and it'd be sold. And and then these people who were pagans who would offer meat to the idols or knew other people that offered meat to idols, they go to the marketplace and they go, has this meat been sacrificed or offered to idols? And then we just kind of feel weird about it because they used to be in that pagan world. Now they're Christians. They go, oh, I can't eat meat anymore because it, it was or it could have been sacrificed to idols. And so I got to go vegetarian. And that was kind of a conscience issue back in Paul's day. Now, Paul addresses that in Romans, but we're going to look at 1 Corinthians just real quick because it gets right to the point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Verses 1 through 8, the Apostle Paul is basically saying, hey, those of you who have a strong conscience who don't have a problem eating meat, you need to be sensitive to the people with a weak conscience. Here's how he puts it. Now, about food, sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. That's not really a good thing. But love builds up. We're not supposed to be puffed up better than everybody else. We support and build and encourage other people. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know it as he ought to know. That is to say, you could know something, but if you know without love, you're not knowing it in the right way. And then in verse 3, he says, listen, you need to be serving other people. And and, and that means you're not condescending or condemning toward other people. And since you need to love other people and not be condescending and condemning, you've got to be careful about what you know. And Paul says, I know this too. And he affirms this in the next few verses. I have no problem eating a cheeseburger. Even if it was sold in the pagan marketplace and the, the traditional arguments of the Jews is it's a dead idol. It's like it's just a piece of wood, it's a piece of, piece of clay, it's a piece of stone. It's like whatever. I'm not worshiping them. I'm just eating a steak. 
Paul says, I'm fine. i got a strong conscience. But if you're strong, you don't use your strength to hurt the weak. You use your strength to help the weak. We've got little dogs around our house, and we're very careful not to step on them. You know why? Because strength doesn't give you a right to step on little dogs. If you have a child, you're careful with the child, even more careful with the baby. Why? Because the weaker they are, the more careful you are. That's just the way it works. It works that way with people who have a weak conscience. And so Paul continues and he says this, but not everyone knows this, that it's okay to eat that steak, no big deal. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So the phrase, so accustomed, is referring to the culture which they're brought up. And so Paul says, look, there's just some people it's going to bother them. And because it bothers them and it causes them to violate their conscience and they feel really bad, you can just be careful. Don't have a weak conscience yourself. You can have a strong conscience, but you've got to be very sensitive to the weak. And then he concludes this in verse 12 with this statement, when you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So your love has to limit your particular liberties. And around the house, I understand this. I can't just walk wherever I want. If my dog is lying in the middle of the hallway, I step around it. There's certain people you just have to be careful and gentle and step around and limit your liberty. It's um, it's a little bit like, and I don't mean to tell stories on anybody or anything, but well, I will. Uh, Jonathan. Don't be like Jonathan. Uh, the other day, Jonathan was invited over to, to somebody's house. He's trying to minister, and they invited him over to the house, and they said, uh, well, listen, I just want you to know that when you come over for dinner, we only serve vegetarian dishes. Are you okay with that? And John says, oh, sure, fine. Uh, I, in fact, I prefer vegetarian dishes. And they said, really? You don't look like you prefer vegetarian dishes. And, uh, and he said, no, I prefer vegetarian dishes. But for my consciousness sake, I just, I just need you to understand that I prefer to eat vegetarians who are free range and open, you know, uh, open source, you know. That's, that's a joke. Okay, it's really just a joke. We, we have to limit. We have to limit our liberties. And just to be really clear, I'm a meat eater. I'm a carnivore all the way. 100% every meal practically. And, and I feel fine with that. And I don't even have to know the Bible just to say, look, if God didn't want us to eat fish and birds and animals, he wouldn't have made them out of meat. Okay, so I'm good with it. But if I'm, if, if I'm sitting down with a Hindu for lunch and I know that they're vegetarian and, it, and, I, and, if, they, and if I think it's going to offend them, I'm going to have a vegetarian meal. And if I'm with a Muslim for breakfast, I'm not even going to ask. I'm not. I'm just going to have eggs and pancakes and something else. I'm not eating ham and bacon and sausage. And that's why I never have breakfast with Muslims. Okay. But I'm not entering into their weak conscience. As a person with a strong conscience, I want to be sensitive to the person with a weak conscience. Okay. But you don't have to stay in a weak state. This is also something you need to see there in Paul's gospel. Some people now, because they're so accustomed, but you don't have to have, if you have a weak conscience, it can become strong. If you've had your conscience 
manipulated or twisted in some way from your background or culture or upbringing, it can be strengthened. It can change. And so let me give you some, some advice or some direction along these lines. First off, uh, just a, a word of warning. If you do have a, a weak conscience, number one, just be careful about trusting your conscience. Number two, guard against legalism because a lot of times people with a weak conscience adopt certain um, legal standards or uh, they'll be very strict on particular prohibitions in an attempt to out-holy Jesus. And, and I've seen this, and it gets a little weird, and I just want you to know that if you try to out-Jesus Jesus while being condescending toward other people around you, you are not out-Jesusing Jesus. Okay, this is, this, that's not happening. Uh, number three, refuse to judge others. It all kind of goes with the territory. And if, and if you're saying, well, no, wait a second, I feel like like I'm, I am trying to out-holy everybody else, and I do feel kind of legalistic, and I feel like I'm judging other people. Are you saying that I have a weak conscience? Yes. Uh, well, how do we deal with that? Well, if you have a weak conscience and it's a little bit off, here's a couple of things real quickly, and I'm going to be fast on this. One, submit your, your mind to your, your conscience to the Scripture. This is in Hebrews. Hebrews 4.14 says, But solid food, and here it's very clear that it's the truth of Scripture, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Constant use. It takes a while to come out of a culture. It takes a while to come out of an upbringing. And, and some of us who've kind of changed a little bit or, or modified or become more loving or however you want to put it, you know, you didn't just get there overnight. You know, it's just like the little puppy becomes a big dog, like what, after a year or two years? Our dogs never. But you you got to be patient. But the constant use of Scripture. And then also, number two, Bring your conscience under the instruction of godly people. Let me give you a couple of verses here. Uh, Proverbs thirteen twenty: He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Proverbs 27, 9. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of one's friends uh, springs from his earnest counsel. There's a lot in the Bible about earnest counsel. That's another sermon series. Uh, Proverbs 27, verse 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Um, so look, I, I do this. I, I, I ask for counsel and I give counsel, um, and it's very helpful. There are occasions when something bothers me, and I will go to somebody that I that I respect and that knows the situation, and I'll say, "Okay, did I do I need to take this to heart or blow this off? I mean, did I, was I wrong?" Or I'm like, sometimes like you don't know, and 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 sometimes it's like, "No, Ernest, you're okay," and sometimes it's like, "You know, you need to." Make, you need to apologize and make things right. That just happens. And sometimes we have a hard time figuring things out. And just because it's bothering you, though, doesn't mean that you've done wrong. Some of us here, we've, got, we've gotten sideways with a brother or sister, literally or in the church. Okay? Or some of us, we, you know, we haven't talked to a son or a daughter in months, maybe years, uh, or a parent and, or a friend, and, and, and it bothers us. I mean, we go to bed every night, some of us, just praying for the situation. Just because it bothers you doesn't mean that you were wrong. It can just bother you because you want a relationship with this person and you want to make it right, but sometimes you can't. And in those moments, you just have to know, and you go to other people that you respect and and you ask, am I missing something? Do I need to do something else? And sometimes the answer is, well, no, you didn't do anything wrong in the first place and you already apologized and you didn't really need to and... Last week, there was a lady in the congregation. Immediately after the service, she sent me an email. I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you, you know, soon. Because her conscience was bothering her. She'd gone sideways with somebody. And she told me the situation. I knew the situation. I knew the other person. I knew her. And I just told her, like, you didn't do anything wrong. 
And, uh, and it's going to take a while for you to just rest easy about this. And sometimes that's just going to be the case. But you need to submit yourself to Scripture and you submit yourself to godly counsel. And some of us, we got godly counsel in our homes because we grew up with Christian parents or Christian brother or sister or older, and they, they kind of counseled us and we learned. But some of us are newer to the faith. And if you're newer to the faith, sometimes you need a big brother, a big sister, or a spiritual mom or dad in the faith that can just help you to get clarity. There's a third problem with regards to the conscience, and that is there's the guilty conscience. Okay, It's not just the seared conscience or the weak conscience. There's also the guilty conscience. And I'm going to shoot straight to the end on this one. This is not this complicated. If you have a guilty conscience, what do you need to do? Bring it to Jesus. I mean, let's skip down to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. It says that his blood, the blood of Jesus, cleanses our consciences of acts that lead to death so that we we may serve the living God. I want you to think about how Jesus renovates, repairs, redeems the guilty conscience. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter confidence, are you confident to enter confidence? the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. God in Christ has actually objectively dealt with the guilt of your sin. The guilt is the guilt was put on Jesus, he dealt with it. That means that if you're a believer and you still feel guilty, you shouldn't feel guilty because you're not guilty. Jesus dealt with the guilt. So sometimes the reason that we feel guilty is because subjectively we haven't appropriated what's been objectively done. It, in other words, it takes a while for some things to just sink in. And for some of us, the reason we feel guilty is, well, you're guilty. If you feel like you've sinned against the holy, holy, holy God, oh, well, you're right. And there's one way to deal with it, through Jesus. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus was dying to have you come back into a relationship with the Father, and so we did. That's just how, that's how it works. And so if you've not received the actual forgiveness for the guilt of your sin, you need to receive it. And if you have received the forgiveness for the guilt of your sin you need to receive that too you need to be appropriated you need to need to feel forgiven because you are let me mention two verses real quick and just let them wash over as uh, as we close this morning this is first john chapter one verse nine if we confess our sin he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness psalm 103 verses 10 through 12 he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. We get better than we deserve. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. I want to look at, I want to think through both of these images because it's pretty cool here. As far as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much he loves you. You know how far the heavens are above the earth? It's like, wait, I don't understand. How far are the heavens above the earth? You can't measure it, literally. And you say, well, it's, you know, billions of light years. and what, you, No, you can't measure it. 
You know why? Because the operational scientific theory right now is, well, because the heavens are expanding. They're, they're stretching out. You know what's kind of interesting? Uh, there's a, there's a astrophysicist by the name of, uh, Hugh Ross, and he has identified 11 different verses in the Bible from five different authors, and it talks about how God is stretching or has been stretching the heavens. He said, you know, it's, it's interesting how the Hebrew scriptures thousands of years in advance predicted that we would discover that the universe is actually expanding. So if you, if you take those Bible, Bible verses literally, you don't have to, but if you do, and if you take modern scientific consensus seriously, you know what that means? That means that the heavens are moving away. They're literally expanding. You literally can't measure it because it's getting further and further. It's, it's kind of like, um, uh, Nathan Hairgrove. You can't measure him because every week he's expanding and expanding and expanding. It's like my midsection. Every week it's expanding and expanding, expand, something like that. That's the love of God. You can't measure it. When he removes our sins from us, he doesn't say, I'm going to remove your sins as far as the north is from the south. You know why? Because you can get from the north to the south. If you start at the South Pole, it's going to take you 12,400-something miles in order to get there. But you can get there. If you start traveling east, how far east do you go before you get to west? Okay, some of you all skipped science class. You never get there. Because when you go around the globe and you're heading east, you never catch west. Or you head west, you never catch East, and if you're flat earther, you just walk until you fall off, but they, they never, they never meet, okay? And, and I'm sorry, I didn't have a pang of conscience about that joke at all. But, the authors say, as far as the east is from the west, immeasurable. As far as the heavens are above the earth, immeasurable. Why is it that if you've received Christ, you're still feeling guilty for those things of five years, ten years, twenty years ago? Here, here it is. You're not appropriating or really fully believing the truth. And again, I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying something's already been done for you. Live in it. And if you've not received what Jesus has done for you, then you need to receive it. One more verse and we're actually closing on this one. No matter how deep the stain of your sins, God says, I can remove it. I can make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. Even if you are stained as red as crimson, I can make you white as wool. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, thank you for the gift of the conscience. Thank you for the gift that enables us to actually discern you and your will and the leading of your Holy Spirit who sometimes convicts and sometimes comforts. So our conscience sometimes appropriately accuses and sometimes defends, but never condemns. And because we are not condemned as your people, we can be completely honest with ourselves and we don't have to play the blame game and the comparison game and the shrink God down to sides game because you're not We just don't need to ever avoid the truth because the truth of the matter is that while we have fallen short, we are still in Christ, your beloved children. And there is never anything 
that we could do. There's nothing we can do today or tomorrow or the next day that's going to lo- make you love us more or accept us more fully than you did yesterday. Our acceptance is complete in Christ Jesus. And thank you, thank you, Lord, that you can, through your word, strengthen our conscience. And we don't have to wonder because you've revealed your nature most fully in Jesus to whom the scriptures point. And your word gives us so many instruction and guidelines. It's And, and, and the greatest thing of all is this grace orientation that especially comes from having been adopted as your children and cleansed and forgiven, our guilt dealt with once and for all, nailed up to to the cross, never to be taken down. Lord, uh, we just want to say thank you for forgiving us of not just the way we have violated our conscience and not done what you want us to do and hurt other people in ways that we shouldn't have been. We also want to just say thank you for forgiving us for the violence that we've done to ourselves by not following our conscience, the very reflection of you in our lives. Lord, you're, you're, you're so forgiving and we want to say thank you but to those who have not received your forgiveness or have not are not living in your forgiveness i pray lord you'd help them to more deeply understand and appropriate and accept the forgiveness that you have given because you came and you lived the life we should have lived and then you died the death we deserved to die so that we would be given something other than what we deserve You are better than we deserve. But we do not doubt that you have given us yourself and have completely removed the stain of our guilt in Jesus. And so especially, Lord, if there are any here who have yet to receive the forgiveness of God and the cleansing of sin, I pray you would give them the wherewithal right now to simply say to you, God, I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short. I know I've done things that were wrong. And I, it's not just that I slipped up. I did the wrong knowing them to be wrong. And I know I have, I have guilt. And it's not just because I did other people wrong. I did you wrong. I didn't follow you. I rebelled like Adam and Eve. And I played little games, but I know it. I've sinned. I also know there's forgiveness available to me. And it's available in one place through one person. It's available through Jesus and because of what he did on the cross for me. So God, right now, I want to receive Christ as my Savior and Lord. I I want to ask you to please apply to my life what Jesus did on the cross, that I would be forgiven. God, thank you for forgiving me of my sin. And Lord, I want to spend the rest of my days just learning more about what it means to be forgiven, and to live in right relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you prayed that, I want...